This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and she said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is one hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him. And God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money. 
every male among the men of Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised, and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or brought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our hearts to receive this word. That we would see in this word not only our family history, the history of your people, but we would also see in it shown forth the glory of Christ, the mediator of the covenant of grace, the covenant symbolized in what was done in this chapter. We pray that in this chapter we would see Christ shown forth for us, and we would also because of what Christ has done for us, live lives of gratitude that are pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our world, there are many markers of identity, things that distinguish who we are, what we are a part of, what we belong to. Shortly after birth, most people in this country are assigned a social security number. It used to be just for Social Security and the collection of taxes, but now has come to be an identifier for just about everything. If you want to open a bank account or buy a house or a car or get a driver's license, you need to have a Social Security number. Or speaking of a driver's license, there's another one. Yet, it does show your ability to operate a motor vehicle, but it also doubles as your standard identification. You need it to get into places to do things, to get on an airplane and things of that sort. If you own cattle or horses, many of you do, they have to be branded so they can be identified as yours and not anyone else's. This is another identity marker, another ownership marker. If you buy a car, you get a title and you have to have the title to sell that car. If you own land, you get a title to the property. It has to be legally vested in your name. So we have all in our world all these different markers of ownership and identity. But they don't just belong to the physical realm. There are identity and ownership markers that God's people receive concerning their spiritual life. Whatever we may be, American taxpayers, licensed drivers, owners of certain property, we as Christians belong to our God. There is a mark, there is a sign of ownership he puts upon us. And we will learn about one of the historic signs God used for this purpose in our text today. Now this text falls at a critical time in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 15, we saw that God formally made a covenant with Abram to bless him to multiply his descendants to an uncountable number. But then, last time we saw in chapter 16 that everything went crazy. Sarai hatched a scheme to have Abram take Hagar as another wife, and then this produced strife and jealousy and a tangled web of sin. But Abram does now have a son, 
even if under less than ideal circumstances. And one might be inclined to wonder after such an ugly episode if maybe this is not the covenant family we're looking for. But as I said when we looked at chapter 15 a few weeks ago, God did not enter into a covenant of works with Abram. The covenant of works, the only covenant of works, was made with and was broken by Adam. We just talked about that in Sunday school this morning. The covenant with Abram was an administration of the covenant of grace. God took upon himself the requirement of fulfilling the terms of the covenant. It's not made because of any inherent goodness or righteousness in Abram or his family, for we have seen that that is often lacking. God deals with Abram on the basis of his own goodness, God's own goodness, his favor and grace. And we see this yet again, and that right after this ugly episode of chapter 16, we again see God reveal himself graciously to Abram with more covenantal revelation in chapter 17. Though there is some time that passes between the two in the text, we go immediately to more gracious revelation. Though Abram is flawed and sinful, God keeps his promises to him and continues to add and expand upon them. We will look at this new covenantal revelation in chapter 17 in four points today. First, we see covenant speech in verses 1 through 8. God speaks to Abram again about who he is and what he will do. Second, a covenant sign. In verses 9 through 14, God will prescribe an identity marker, a sign of ownership for his covenant people. Third, we see a covenant son in verses 15 through 22. We find that not Ishmael, but another will carry forward the blessings of the covenant and its promises. And then fourth and finally, covenant service in verses 23 through 27. Abraham will respond to this covenant and its blessings with obedience to what God requires. So again, we have covenant speech, covenant sign, covenant son, and covenant service. So first we will look at covenant speech in verses 1 through 8. We get here a time marker that Abram was 99 years old. So roughly 13 years have passed from the events of chapter 16 to now, Ishmael, as we see, is 13 years old. He's a teenager. He's a young man. Now, this tells us something that we ought to consider as we think about God's ways and his revelation. We think of the Bible and the people in it as those who are constantly receiving God's revelation, seeing great signs and wonders and miracles. We think that because when we read the Bible, this is the parts we hear about. But in reality, those events are rare, even for the biblical figures. Abram and Sarai had 13 years of what was probably just fairly mundane and normal life, where nothing of such significance was going on. God wasn't appearing to them. He wasn't giving them any new revelation. They would have continued to worship him, but as far as any of these special words or anything, nothing of the sort would have come. Now, this is important because many in our day are constantly chasing some kind of spiritual experience. They want to be 
where they think God is working in new and powerful ways. This has fueled a lot of the revivalist instincts of the past couple of centuries. You might remember just a few months ago, there was a revival that broke out at Ashbury University in Kentucky, and people were traveling from all over the country. They wanted to see this. They wanted to be a part of this because they thought that that was where God was working and that was the ways in which God works. In chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession, we confess that some of the former ways that God worked in the world and spoke to his people, things like direct prophecy and tongues and such, have now ceased. We now have Scripture as the complete revelation of God preserved for us. But even when those things were happening in the world, they still happened relatively rarely. So what did Abram do in those 13 years? Well, he probably did a lot of tending livestock, raising his son, buying and selling goods. He did the things of ordinary life, but did them before God's face as one of his people, worshiping God acting in love and service to God. And that is what most of the Christian life is for most people, and that's okay. Most of our lives will involve and require faithfulness in what is ordinary, what is mundane. But after these 13 years, God appears to Abram once again. He identifies himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty. God has all might. He has all power. Now, this is a good reminder after a chapter where people acted in a way that was very distrusting of God and his power. Remember that Sarai wanted to take a shortcut. She acknowledged that God had the power to withhold children from her, but did not trust in his power to grant children. That will be important here in a moment. When the Lord appears to Abram after identifying himself by this name, he also tells Abram to, he says, walk before me and be blameless. But Andrew, you say, you just said that this was not a covenant of works. This is a covenant of grace made with fallen and sinful people. I did say that. And we're not done with Abram's sin. We are going to see more sin In the story of his life, we'll see some of the old sins of the past for Abram being repeated. Abram's not going to live sinlessly. He has not lived sinlessly. He has not lived blamelessly. But Almighty God does what was told to us in chapter 15. Abram believed and it was accounted as righteousness. God Almighty is almighty to work the righteousness of faith in Abram. Though still a sinner, Abram will walk before God and be blameless because he is justified by faith. But because he is justified by faith, he strives for righteousness. He strives to walk before God. It's the same sort of thing we see when we read the Ten Commandments. We have the preamble, which tells us first and foremost what God has done. He delivered his people from sin and misery. Thus far, God has redeemed Abram and blessed him with blessings, spiritual and material. And Abram, as his duty to God, should walk before God and strive to be blameless, putting his sin to death and walking in new obedience. 
You can think of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's structured in this way, this guilt, grace, gratitude. We have our sin and misery. We have what God has done for us. And then in light of that, then we live because it's not a covenant of works. We're not saved by our works. Well, in verse 2, we get God's reason for appearing. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, God has already made his covenant with Abram. We saw that formally done in chapter 15, the ceremony with the animals that were cut in half and that sort of thing. But this word for make here is very flexible. It could mean to give, to set, to establish. And what is happening here in chapter 17 is the establishment, the reaffirmation and expansion of the covenant already made in chapter 15. And we also see a restatement of an existing covenant promise. I will multiply you exceedingly. And we see that Abram responds with a fitting response when God appears. In verse 3, he falls down on his face in worship. The word inspires worship. God speaks and we worship him according to what he has revealed. But God continues to speak in verse 4. He tells Abram that his covenant is with him and that Abram will be the father of many nations. Now, Abram thinks at this point this is going to come to pass by Ishmael, the son that was born out of the mess in chapter 16. Now, in a sense, it will. Ishmael will be a father of nations, as Hagar was told in the wilderness. But there will be another son to come. And furthermore, as we have seen before, this covenant does not only reach to the physical descendants of Abraham, it is so that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Eventually, salvation will come through a descendant of Abraham for a people of every tribe and tongue and nation on the earth. Yes, there will be kings and nations and peoples physically descended from Abraham, and they will inherit the land. We see all those promises again in verses 6 through 8, but the scope is bigger. It's looking at the whole earth. It's looking at all peoples. Now, we also see in the process of this covenant establishment that in verse 5, Abram gets a new name. He will no longer be Abram, but the name by which he is now more commonly known, Abraham. The names are similar, but they carry different significance. Abram means exalted father. True enough. But Abraham means father of a multitude, father of many, father of nations. Abraham gets a new name, as an identity marker of his covenantal status. He gets a name that will serve as a constant reminder of who God has declared that he will be. That is one of the identity markers and ownership markers we see in this chapter. We see new names, first for Abram and then later for Sarai. It is an identity and ownership marker from the God who gives it and who owns them and their descendants. Then we see at the end of verse 8, this most basic covenantal and relational language when God says, I will be their God. That is, in essence, in summary, the covenant of grace. You see it over and over again throughout Scripture. I will be your God. You will be my people. But the next identity marker comes in our second point. 
After covenant speech, we get a covenant sign in verses 9 through 14. God continues to speak to Abraham about what should be done in light of these covenantal blessings. He says that Abraham and his descendants must keep the covenant. There are certain steps that as God's people, called and delivered by him, they are required to take. Though obedience does not bring one into the covenant, though it is not salvation by works, there is a continued obedience in thankfulness and gratitude that is fitting and is required for those who are in the covenant. There is a rule for life and conduct. And so here the covenant sign of circumcision is prescribed. But why circumcision? Much of the promises that God has made to Abram concern descendants. And circumcision would certainly hit close to home there, applying to the part from which descendants come. Now it applies only to male children. This does not mean that women are not a part of the covenant, but it does show a priority of male headship in covenant families. It also shows the image of things to come. It is a bloody sign. It requires a certain amount of bloodshed from the recipients, a young son. As this bloody sign exists in the covenant of grace, it is a picture of what sin requires. Sin requires bloodshed. Sin requires cutting off. Sin requires death. But the sign in itself does not accomplish any forgiveness of sins. Rather, it points to the one who does, the perfect and eternal son who was to be cut off to fulfill the righteousness which the covenant of grace required. Now, why must it be done on the eighth day? We're not given a specific reason. But the eighth day isn't significant in that it means that an entire week has passed. There were similar restrictions placed in Leviticus on how old animals could be sacrificed. They had to be at least eight days old. The length of creation is a week. Perhaps there's some sort of symbolism of how sin and death come into the world after creation, a reminder of the fall and sin and the consequences of them. Perhaps it is a reminder of final judgments after the fullness of days, after work and rest is represented by the creational week, there comes death, there comes punishment for sins for those who do not belong to the covenant. Again, these are just possibilities. We're not told the exact reason for the eighth day. But we also see in this institution of the sign of circumcision that there are provisions for those who are not the physical descendants of Abram. There are also provisions for those who are born in his house. Now, you might remember we've seen this kind of language before, talking about Eliezer of Damascus, who before the birth of Ishmael, he was Abram's presumptive, son, presumptive heir. Since Abram didn't have a son, he was the one who was to inherit Abram's household. But he was not one born in Abram's house. He was one from outside. So this language about those born in the house is talking about those who came into the house from outside. We also see a provision for servants, for slaves. So both of these cases indicate those who would be Gentiles, those who were not physical descendants of Abram, yet still being welcomed into the covenants. 
Though most of the Old Testament people of God would be restricted to Israel, that was not the determining factor. From the beginning, there are provisions for the Gentiles to be brought in. Ultimately, this covenant of grace is pointing to a place and time where in a new and powerful way, all the nations, just as God said, will be blessed. It will only be seen in a shadowy form in the old covenant as a relatively small number from outside come in, but they do come in and eventually the nations will come in. Now there are penalties for failing to carry out the covenant sign, namely cutting off. To not be cut off by circumcision is to be cut off from the people, to be cut off from the worship of God, to be cut off from life itself. Now, does this mean that circumcision is a saving work? No, it doesn't. Many receive the sign throughout the Old Testament, but still die in their sins. You could think of examples. You could think of the wilderness generation, uh, those who perished in their sins, though they were visibly part of God's people. You could think of Ishmael. You could think of Esau, others to come. But those who are unwilling to wear God's mark of ownership or give it to their children, what they are demonstrating is that they do not belong to him. It is a sign of rebellion. It is a sign of apostasy and unbelief to not take and to not give the covenant sign. Now it is here that we need to note the connection between circumcision as the sign of the old covenant and baptism as the covenant sign of the new This connection is made explicit in texts like Romans chapter 6 and Colossians 2. Just as circumcision was given to male children, baptism is given to children. However, it is a better sign, in part because it can and should be administered to children, both male and female. It is more inclusive. Now, it's also better because circumcision was bloody. It required cutting off. It required pain and suffering, even if a limited amount. Baptism is an unbloody sign by the application of clean water. And this shows us the reality of what Christ has done for us. He shed his blood so that our blood does not need to be shed anymore. By his sacrifice, we are washed clean. That circumcision was what it was, and it was administered as it was to serve as a sign of what Christ was going to do to bring the full blessings and benefits of the covenant of grace for his people. Circumcision looked forward as a symbol of realities that Christ must undergo. Baptism looks back to Christ as a symbol of what he has done for us. And this provides part of our basis for infant baptism. It would have been deeply ingrained in the nature of God's people that God's covenant sign, the one that symbolized visible membership in the people of God, was to be given to the faithful and their children. So similarly, baptism, which is now the sign of entry into the church, is given to believers who profess faith and who have not been baptized, and also to their children. But after covenant speech... And covenant sign, we come to our third point, covenant son, in verses 15 through 22. We see that Abraham is not the only one who got a new name that day. 
Sarai is similarly renamed Sarah in verse 15. Now, Sarai meant my princess. The change means the removal of the possessive my. She is now the princess of multitudes. God is blessing Sarah similarly to the way that Abraham is blessed. He's not just the father. He's the father of nations. And Sarah is not just anyone's princess. She is the princess over many nations. These renamings show an expansion of blessings and promises. But this is not merely a change in abstract. Sarah gets a new name because she is going to have a son. Now this demonstrates God's goodness and grace as it was Sarah who perpetuated the whole disaster of chapter 16 where Abraham took another wife and had a son already. But God still intends to work through aged and barren Sarah. And it is through her son that the covenant will be carried forward. Abraham doesn't understand this at first. In fact, the thought of Sarah having a child at her age, he found that rather amusing. Falls on his face differently from how he fell on his face before. Not in worship, but, but laughing. That would be quite an irreverent scene to do before God, but that is what he does. It would be absurd to think of Sarah having a son at her age. Abraham still thinks that Ishmael is the answer and that he is going to be the son of the covenants. He's still struggling to shed his worldly and pragmatic thinking in the face of God's revelation. And Sarah herself is going to undergo a similar struggle later. But with God, all things are possible. And this is seen in the response in verse 19. Sarah really is going to have a son, and his name will be Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. His name will be a perpetual reminder of how Abraham and Sarah found it laughable that God would grant them a child in old age, and yet God does it anyway. And God will establish his covenant. He will confirm and continue this covenant, not through Ishmael, though Ishmael will receive some blessings. He will continue the covenant through Isaac. Again, Ishmael will be blessed, as we heard before, we hear again. He will be the father of nations. He will have 12 sons who will each be their own tribes. But the covenant is with Isaac and those who will come from him. We see God's electing and saving grace and how he will fulfill his promises despite man's designs. But after the covenant speech, sign, and son, we come to our final point, covenant service, in verses 23 through 27. God has shown this great grace and favor to Abraham with the covenant and the promises of blessings that will come from it. But action is now required on Abraham's part. Remember that the covenant sign was given and it had to be carried out lest the covenant be broken. To not administer the sign was to show unbelief and to show apostasy. This shows us the role of good works in the life of God's people. We don't do what God commands so that by doing so we will receive God's grace. 
Rather, out of love and gratitude for what God has done for us by grace, we do what He commands. We desire to do what is pleasing to Him. And if we don't desire to do what is pleasing to Him and what He has commanded, it shows that we really don't love Him. It shows rebellion. It can show apostasy. We see in verses 23 and 24 that Abraham does what God required of him. He himself, 99 years old, was circumcised, as well as everyone in his household. This would have included even the servants, even those from outside who dwelt there. And Ishmael, this son of pragmatism from the previous chapter, he also receives the sign. He is circumcised. He is visibly received into the people of God. But invisibly, spiritually, Ishmael does not belong to the Lord. He does not have faith. He will be cast out. He and his descendants will live away from the face of God. Like Ham before the son of Noah we talked about before. Like Esau and others to come after. Though visibly for a time part of the church, part of the city of God, Ishmael's home is among the city of man. So what do we do with all of this? We have seen in this establishment, this affirmation of the covenant, several important truths for us. First, we see that God is faithful to keep his promises despite human sin. In the last chapter, Abram and Sarai made a mess of things. They sinned against God. They sinned against each other. But God still loves them and uses them and keeps his promises to them, not because they are good, but because he is good. Because of his love and mercy and grace. Our God saves sinners. It's the only kind of people there are to save is sinners. There are no perfect people. If God only saved perfect people, there would be no one. But second, we see in this sign of the covenant gospel realities. We see the bloody sign that points to our bloodied Savior, Jesus Christ, who was born under the law. He fulfilled it perfectly, and he suffered and died to make a full and final atonement for the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. And now in our baptism, we see that bloodshed has ended. We do not shed our blood. We do not suffer and die for our sins because Christ has done it for us. Our God saves sinners, and he does it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We'll be looking at a text tonight in the Gospel of John where Jesus speaks about Abraham and exactly what relation he had to him. And in our baptism, we also see how God deals with people covenantally, through families, through the descendants of covenant people. We see the promise that is for us and for our children forever, and so we should be faithful to observe this covenant sign. And finally, we see that God's grace inspires new obedience. Because God loves us and has shown us this grace and mercy, delivered us from our sins, because Christ has suffered and died for us, we should obey him in thankfulness and gratitude. We should strive with sincerity to put our sins to death and to do what he commands.
We see that Abraham does not hesitate to receive this sign for himself and give it to all in his house. It is his mark of ownership, his mark of identity. He belongs to God. He is anticipating the person and work of Christ. But what about you? Do you belong to God? Do you rest on the person and work of Christ? Is his life your life? Is his death your death? Did he die so that you do not have to? Do you trust in him? Do you rest on him alone for your salvation today? And if you do, does that produce in you a desire to love and serve and worship God and to love your neighbor? May these promises to Abraham be for us today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have revealed to us. We thank you how in it we see your grace, how we see even in the sign of circumcision, the realities of Christ and what he was to come to do for us, how he was your son who was cut off, who spilled his blood so that we might live. I pray that all here gathered would believe in Christ, receive Christ, rest on Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. I pray that because of this salvation, that those who belong to you would love you and honor you and serve you in all that they do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.